Hello, I'm Archbishop John Wilson, and I'm the Bishop for Catechesis at the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. This year, 2019, is the 40th anniversary of the promulgation of Pope St John Paul II's Apostolic Exhortation, Catechesi Tridende, one of the great church documents on catechesis in the modern world. We wish to mark this occasion by inviting the faithful, particularly catechists, many of whom have never encountered the beauty and richness of John Paul II's thoughts on catechesis to delve into Catechesi Tridende, either individually or ideally in groups. This is why we have produced this study and formation guide in the spirit of Catechesi Tridende itself, which boldly states, everybody needs to be catechised. John Paul II repeatedly invites all the faithful even clergy, religious and catechists, to continued renewal of their ministry and deepening of their faith through prayer, study and contemplation, to build up their personal apostolate of catechesis and to allow themselves to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. We have produced four modules for this study guide, each based on roughly ten pages of text. Each module includes an outline of the text, the text itself, summary questions, journaling prompts, discussion questions, and perhaps most importantly, prayers to use before study and Lexio Divina passages to help you to enter more deeply into the scriptural inspiration behind this apostolic exhortation. There are detailed instructions for using this guide, and all of these resources are free to download from our website, the text for each module, along with a brief meditation on a central theme of that passage, is also available to listen to in these podcasts. It is my hope that the words of Pope St. John Paul II will encourage and inspire you in your own catechetical work and strengthen your discipleship to Jesus Christ. The closer we draw to him, the more we will be able to lead and inspire those we teach to know him and to follow him. Thank you, from the bottom of my heart, for what you do to teach the Catholic faith. Your faithful witness is an inspiration to many. I offer you my blessing and assure you of my prayers for your very important ministry. Module 1. The opening section of Catechesi Tridende that you are about to hear shows how catechesis is a practice, a demonstration, and an experience of the unity of the Church in Jesus Christ. This unity is best displayed in the profound connection between what Christ did, what he taught, and who he is. Christ himself is the model for catechists. Christ is the true teacher and author of what is taught, which is in essence the mystery of his own person. Christ is the end as well as the origin of the Church's mission. Catechesis is an activity that unites each person with Christ, and also an activity that seeks to unite every person with Christ. It is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus commanded the apostles to make disciples of all nations and teach them. This unity of all people with Christ, and therefore with each other, has a name, the Church. Catechesis, informing Christians, builds up the Church. When we think of the Church, we might think of our own parishes, or perhaps the local Church, England and Wales in our case, or maybe a worldwide Church as it is today. But in this document on catechesis in our times, Pope St John Paul II gives us an eloquent account of catechesis throughout the life of the Church. He shows us what it was to the Apostles, 
to the Church Fathers, to the great catechists of the past. Rather than being distant from us, the historical church we see in Catechesi Tridende is a familiar one. Scripture tells us that the apostles annoyed those outside the church by catechizing, and to many of us the hostility of secular culture to the Word of God is painfully familiar. But the apostles persisted. The apostolic age led on to the patristic age, with its great teachers, like St. John Chrysostom and St. Augustine of Hippo. Later came prolific authors, like St. Charles Borromeo, the recognised patron saint of catechesis. But in our time, we might also look to one of our local saints, a laywoman and convert, Margaret Clitheroe, the Pearl of York, who was martyred for her Catholic faith in the north of England in 1586. She was an ordinary wife and mother, with no great education and no charism for preaching. She is not remembered primarily as a catechist, but catechesis was at the heart of the practice of her faith. She set up a clandestine school to instruct Catholic children in their faith. Her mission was the same as the Apostles. It is the same all catechists undertake today. St Margaret taught in order to spread the word of God and to unite the faithful with Christ. It happens that in her time teaching the Catholic faith was illegal in England. Her final catechetical witness was in her death, which, like her life, expressed profound unity with Christ. You can find a fuller account of Margaret Clitheroe's life in the printed materials for this study guide. In the present day in England and Wales, catechesis usually happens in a parish. In living out your vocation as a catechist, however, you are part of a tradition as old as the Church and part of a community as large as the number of the baptised throughout all of history. Through your ministry, your teaching and your witness of charity, Christians can find deeper union with Christ and with each other through him. A church made strong through faithful, Christocentric catechesis can carry out the Great Commission to make disciples of all people, uniting the world with Christ. Let us pray together that our work as catechists may unite us profoundly with Christ and with each other. St. Margaret Clitheroe, pray for us. Catechesi Tridende, an apostolic exhortation of Pope John Paul II on catechesis in our time. Introduction. Christ's final command. The Church has always considered catechesis one of her primary tasks. For before Christ ascended to his Father after his resurrection, he gave the Apostles a final command, to make disciples of all nations, and to teach them to observe all that he had commanded. He thus entrusted them with the mission and power to proclaim to humanity what they had heard, what they had seen with their eyes, what they had looked upon and touched with their hands concerning the word of life. He also entrusted them with the mission and power to explain with authority what he had taught them, his words and actions, his signs and commandments, and he gave them the Spirit to fulfil this mission. Very soon the name of catechesis was given to the whole of the efforts within the Church to make disciples, to help people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, so that believing they might have life in his name, 
and to educate and instruct them in this life and thus build up the body of Christ. The Church has not ceased to devote her energy to this task. The purpose of this exhortation. It is in a climate of faith and hope that I am today addressing this apostolic exhortation to you, venerable brothers and dear sons and daughters. The theme is extremely vast and the exhortation will keep to only a few of the most topical and decisive aspects of it. In essence, the exhortation takes up these reflections that were prepared by Pope Paul VI, making abundant use of the documents left by the Synod. Pope John Paul I, whose zeal and gifts as a catechist amazed us all, have taken them in hand and was preparing to publish them when he was suddenly called to God. To all of us he gave an example of catechesis, at once popular and concentrated on the essential, one made up of simple words and actions that were able to touch the heart. I am therefore taking up the inheritance of these two popes, in order to fulfil one of the chief duties of my apostolic charge. Catechesis has always been a central care in my ministry as a priest and as a bishop. I ardently desire that this apostolic exhortation to the whole Church should strengthen the solidity of the faith and of Christian living, should give fresh vigour to the initiatives in hand, should stimulate creativity with the required vigilance, and should help to spread among the communities the joy of bringing the mystery of Christ to the world. Part 1. We have but one teacher, Jesus Christ putting into communion with the person of Christ. The Fourth General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops often stressed the Christocentricity of all authentic catechesis. We can here use the word Christocentricity in both its meanings, which are not opposed to each other or mutually exclusive, but each of which rather demands and completes the other. In the first place, it is intended to stress that at the heart of catechesis we find in essence a person, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, who suffered and died for us, and who now, after rising, is living with us forever. It is Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life, and Christian living consists in following Christ, the Sequela Christi, the primary and essential object of catechesis is to use an expression dear to St Paul and also to contemporary theology, the mystery of Christ. Catechizing is in a way to lead a person to study this mystery in all its dimensions, to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, the height and depth, know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, and be filled with all the fullness of God. It is therefore to reveal in the person of Christ the whole of God's eternal design, reaching fulfilment in that person. It is to seek to understand the meaning of Christ's actions and words, and of the signs worked by him, for they simultaneously hide and reveal his mystery. Accordingly, the definitive aim of catechesis is to put people not only in touch, but in communion, in intimacy with Jesus Christ. Only he can lead us to the love of the Father in the Spirit 
and make us sharers in the life of the Trinity. Transmitting Christ's Teaching Christocentricity in catechesis also means that the intention to transmit not one's own teaching or that of some other master, but the teaching of Jesus Christ, the truth that he communicates, or to put it more precisely, the truth that he is. We must therefore say that in catechesis it is Christ, the incarnate Word and Son of God, who is taught. Everything else is taught with reference to him, and it is Christ alone who teaches. Anyone else teaches to the extent that he is Christ's spokesman, enabling Christ to teach with his lips. Whatever be the level of his responsibility in the Church, every catechist must constantly endeavour to transmit by his teaching and behaviour the teaching and life of Jesus. He will not seek to keep directed towards himself and his personal opinions and attitudes the attention and the consent of his mind and heart of the person he is catechizing. Above all, he will not try to inculcate his personal opinions and options as if they express Christ's teaching and the lessons of his life. Every catechist should be able to apply to himself the mysterious words of Jesus. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. St. Paul did this when he was dealing with the question of prime importance. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. What assiduous study of the Word of God transmitted by the Church's Magisterium. What profound familiarity with Christ and with the Father. What a spirit of prayer. What detachment from self must a catechist have in order that he can say, My teaching is not mine. Christ the Teacher. This teaching is not a body of abstract truths. It is the communication of the living mystery of God. The person teaching it in the Gospel is altogether superior in excellence to the Masters in Israel, and the nature of his doctrine surpasses theirs in every way because of the unique link between what he says, what he does, and what he is. Nevertheless, the Gospels clearly relate occasions when Jesus taught. Jesus began to do and teach. With these two verbs, placed at the beginning of the book of the Acts, St. Luke links and at the same time distinguishes two poles in Christ's mission. Jesus taught. It is the witness that he gives of himself. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching. It is the admiring observation of the evangelists, surprised to see him teaching everywhere and at all times, teaching in a manner and with an authority previously unknown. Crowds gathered to him again and again, as his custom was, he taught them. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. It is also what his enemies note for the purpose of drawing from it grounds for accusation and condemnation. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. The One Teacher The one who teaches in this way has a unique title to the name of teacher. Throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, how many times is he given the title of teacher? Of course, the twelve, the other disciples, and the crowds of listeners call him teacher, in tones of admiration, 
trust and tenderness. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the doctors of the law and the Jews in general, do not refuse him the title. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But above all, Jesus himself, at particularly solemn and highly significant moments, calls himself teacher. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And he proclaims the singularity, the uniqueness of his character as teacher. You have one teacher, the Christ. One can understand why people of every kind, race and nation, have for 2,000 years, in all the languages of the earth, given him this title with veneration, repeating in their own ways the exclamation of Nicodemus, We know that you are a teacher come from God. This image of Christ the teacher is at once majestic and familiar, impressive and reassuring. It comes from the pen of the evangelists, and it has often been evoked subsequently in iconography since earliest Christian times. So captivating is it. And I am pleased to evoke it in my turn at the beginning of these considerations on catechesis in the modern world. Teaching through his life as a whole. In doing so, I am not forgetful that the majesty of Christ the teacher and the unique consistency and persuasiveness of his teaching can only be explained by the fact that his words, his parables and his arguments are never separable from his life and his very being. Accordingly, the whole of Christ's life was a continual teaching. His silences, his miracles, his gestures, his prayer, his love for people, his special affection for the little and the poor, his acceptance of the total sacrifice on the cross for the redemption of the world and his resurrection are the actualization of his word and the fulfillment of revelation. Hence, for Christians, the crucifix is one of the most sublime and popular images of Christ the teacher. These considerations follow in the wake of the great traditions of the church and they all strengthen our fervour with regard to Christ the teacher who reveals God to man and man to himself, the teacher who saves, sanctifies and guides, who lives, who speaks, rouses, moves, redresses, judges, forgives and goes with us day by day on the path of history, the teacher who comes and will come in glory. Only in deep communion with him will catechists find light and strength for an authentic, desirable renewal of catechesis. Part 2. An experience as old as the Church The Mission of the Apostles The image of Christ the Teacher was stamped on the spirit of the Twelve and of the First Disciples, and the command, Go and make disciples of all nations, set the course for the whole of their lives. St John bears witness to this in his Gospel when he reports the words of Jesus. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. It was not they who chose to follow Jesus. 
It was Jesus who chose them, kept them with him, and appointed them even before his Passover, that they should go and bear fruit, and that their fruit should remain. For this reason, he formally conferred on them after the resurrection the mission of making disciples of all nations. The whole book of the Acts of the Apostles is a witness that they were faithful to their vocation and to the mission they had received. The members of the first Christian community are seen in it as devoted to the Apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Without any doubt, we find a lasting image of the Church being born of and continually nourished by the Word of the Lord, thanks to the teaching of the Apostles, celebrating that Word in the Eucharistic sacrifice, and bearing witness to it before the world in the sign of charity. When those who opposed the Apostles took offence at their activity, it was because they were annoyed because the Apostles were teaching the people, and the order they gave them was not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But we know that the Apostles considered it right to listen to God rather than to men on this very matter. Catechesis in the Apostolic Age The Apostles were not slow to share with others the ministry of apostleship. They transmitted to their successors the task of teaching. They entrusted it also to the deacons from the moment of their institution. Stephen, full of grace and power, taught unceasingly, moved by the wisdom of the Spirit. The Apostles associated many others with themselves in the task of teaching, and even simple Christians, scattered by persecution, went about preaching the Word. St Paul was, in a preeminent way, the herald of this preaching, from Antioch to Rome, where the last picture of him that we have in Acts is that of a person teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ quite openly. His numerous letters continue and give greater depth to his teaching. The letters of Peter, John, James and Jude are also, in every case, evidence of catechesis in the apostolic age. Before being written down, the Gospels were the expression of an oral teaching, passed on to the Christian communities, and they display with varying degrees of clarity a catechetical structure. St Matthew's account has indeed been called the Catechist's Gospel, and St Mark's the Catechumen's Gospel. The Fathers of the Church The mission of teaching that belonged to the Apostles and their first fellow workers was continued by the Church. Making herself day after day a disciple of the Lord, she earned the title of Mother and Teacher, from Clement of Rome to Origen, the post-apostolic age saw the birth of remarkable works. Next we see a striking fact. Some of the most impressive bishops and pastors, especially in the 3rd and 4th centuries, considered it an important part of their episcopal ministry to deliver catechetical instructions and write treatises. It was the age of Cyril of Jerusalem and John Chrysostom, of Ambrose and Augustine, the age that saw the flowering from the pen of numerous fathers of the Church of works that are still models for us. It would be impossible here to recall, even very briefly, the catechesis that gave support to the spread and advance of the Church in the various periods of history, 
in every continent, and in the widest variety of social and cultural contexts. There was indeed no lack of difficulties, but the word of the Lord completed its course down the centuries. It sped on and triumphed, to use the words of the Apostle Paul. Councils and Missionary Activity The Ministry of Catechesis draws ever fresh energy from the councils. The Council of Trent is a noteworthy Councils and Missionary Activity The Ministry of Catechesis draws ever fresh energy from the councils. The Council of Trent is a noteworthy example of this. It gave catechesis priority in its constitutions and decrees. It lies at the origin of the Roman Catechism, which is also known by the name of that council, and which is a work of the first rank as a summary of Christian teaching and traditional theology for use by priests. It gave rise to a remarkable organisation of catechesis in the Church. It aroused the clergy to their duty of giving catechetical instruction. Thanks to the work of holy theologians, such as St. Charles Borromeo, St. Robert Bellarmine, and St. Peter Canisius, it involved the publication of catechisms that were real models for that period. May the Second Vatican Council stir up in our time a like enthusiasm and similar activity. The missions are also a special area for the application of catechesis. The people of God have thus continued for almost 2,000 years to educate themselves in the faith in ways adapted to the various situations of believers and the many different circumstances in which the Church finds herself. Catechesis is intimately bound up with the whole of the Church's life. Not only her geographical extension and numerical increase, but even more, her inner growth and correspondence with God's plan depend essentially on catechesis. It is worthwhile pointing out some of the many lessons to be drawn from the experience in church history that we have just recalled. Catechesis as the church's right and duty. To begin with, it is clear that the church has always looked on catechesis as a sacred duty and an inalienable right. On the one hand, it is certainly a duty springing from a command given by the Lord and resting above all on those who in the new covenant receive the call to the ministry of being pastors. On the other hand, one can likewise speak of a right. From the theological point of view, every baptised person, precisely by the reason of being baptised, has the right to receive from the church instruction and education, enabling him or her to enter on a truly Christian life. And from the viewpoint of human rights, every human being has the right to seek religious truth, and adhere to it freely, that is to say, without coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups and any human power, in such a way that in this matter of religion, no one is forced to act against his or her conscience or prevented from acting in conformity to it. That is why catechetical activity should be able to be carried out in favourable circumstances of time and place and should have access to the mass media and suitable equipment, without discrimination against parents, those receiving catechesis or those imparting it. At present, this right is admittedly being given growing recognition, at least on the level of its main principles, 
as is shown by international declarations and conventions, in which whatever their limitations, one can recognise the desires of the consciences of many people today. But the right is being violated by many states, even to the point that imparting catechesis, having it imparted and receiving it become punishable offences. I vigorously raise my voice in union with the Synod Fathers against all discrimination in the field of catechesis. And at the same time, I again make a pressing appeal to those in authority to put a complete end to these constraints on human freedom in general and on religious freedom in particular. Priority of this task. The second lesson concerns the place of catechesis in the Church's pastoral programmes. The more the Church, whether on the local or universal level, gives catechesis priority over other works and undertakings, the result of which would be more spectacular, the more she finds in catechesis a strengthening of her internal life as a community of believers and of her external activity as a missionary church. As the 20th century draws to a close, the church is bidden by God and by events, each of them a call from him, to renew her trust in catechetical activity as a prime aspect of her mission. She is bidden to offer catechesis her best resources in people and energy, without sparing effort, toil or material means, in order to organise it better and to train qualified personnel. This is no mere human calculation. It is an attitude of faith, and an attitude of faith always has reference to the faithfulness of God, who never fails to respond. Shared but differentiated responsibility. The third lesson is that catechesis always has been and always will be a work for which the whole church must feel responsible and must wish to be responsible. But the church's members have different responsibilities, derived from each one's mission. Because of their charge, pastors have at differing levels the chief responsibility for fostering, guiding and coordinating catechesis. For his part, the Pope has a lively awareness of the primary responsibility that rests on him in this field. In this he finds reasons for pastoral concern, but principally a source of joy and hope. Priests and religious have in catechesis a preeminent field for their apostolate. On another level, parents have a unique responsibility. Teachers, the various ministers of the church, catechists, and also organizers of social communications, all have in various degrees very precise responsibilities in this education of the believing conscience, an education that is important for the life of the church and affects the life of society as such. It would be one of the best results of the General Assembly of the Synod that was entirely devoted to catechesis if it stirred up in the church as a whole and in each sector of the church a lively and active awareness of this differentiated but shared responsibility. Continual balanced renewal. Finally, catechesis needs to be continually renewed by a certain broadening of its concept, by the revision of its methods, by the search for suitable language, and by the utilization of new means of transmitting the message. 
renewal is sometimes unequal in value. The Synod Fathers realistically recognised not only an undeniable advance in the vitality of catechetical activity and promising initiatives, but also the limitations, even deficiencies, in what has been achieved to date. These limitations are particularly serious when they endanger integrity of content. The message to the people of God rightly stressed that routine, with its refusal to accept any change, and improvisation, with its readiness for any venture, are equally dangerous for catechesis. Routine leads to stagnation, lethargy, and eventual paralysis. Improvisation begets confusion on the part of those being given catechesis, and when these are children, on the part of their parents. It also begets all kinds of deviations, and the fracturing and eventually the complete destruction of unity. It is important for the Church to give proof today, as she has done at other periods of her history, of evangelical wisdom, courage and fidelity, in seeking out and putting into operation new methods and new prospects for catechetical instruction.